We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. And we seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. We are continuing Shahab Ahmad, what is Islam? We are on page 93 mm-hmm. uh, with the paragraph that begins, finally. All right, who's reading? Me? Okay. Finally, while we might imagine the pre-modern Muslim masses to have been scrupulous, Scrupulous. Scrupulous. But so detail-oriented. Okay. Puritan observers of legal norms along the lines of proto-Salafis or like a medieval vote bank for the Muslim Brotherhood. We should remember that this is not at all how the pre-modern jurisprudential elites, who too many of us are altogether too disposed to view as a medieval Muslim Brotherhood leadership, viewed them. Okay. So to put this in simple language, our tendency is to think that the Muslim masses were literalists, basically like Salafis, right? Or like the Muslim Brotherhood in the sense that they they were like Boy Scouts of Islam, okay? But he is saying, nope, that's not at all the case. And even the, the, the Muftis were not even like that. Can you explain what you mean by Boy Scouts of Islam? So if you think of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, so what is the goal of the Muslim Brotherhood is to, uh, to develop an upright family, then to develop an upright society, then to develop an upright nation. Okay. So, like Boy Scouts. But not, not like boys, though. They're like men. Okay, men scouts. <laughs> <laughs> Rather, these jurisprudential elites regarded the beliefs and practices of the majority of relatively uneducated and illiterate Muslims to be characterized by ignorance, misunderstanding, and deviation from Islam, and thus in constant need of normative restoration by means of corrective elite intervention. Oh, I have to correct myself. He's not saying that the muftis were like that. He's saying we might imagine the 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 pre-modern Muslim masses to be essentially, you know, medieval Salafis or or man scouts, um, but the muftis at that time didn't see them that way. Uh, rather, how did the muftis see them? They saw them as characterized by ignorance, misunderstanding, deviation from Islam, constant need of reminder and correction and such. Corrective elite intervention, meaning were these scholars elites? Um, I'm thinking students? that the elites here is referring to the social elites. Social elites? Yeah, that's my guess. So, um, is it saying then that the muftis were literists or literalists or no? I mean, the muftis were muftis, which would include some literalism, mm-hmm. but they had methods of interpretation. Okay, yeah. So. The primary instrument of this elite intervention was the prescriptive discourse of the law. Oh, which... wait, wait, wait. Oh my goodness. Yeah, continue. <laughs> uh, should I start over? Uh, no, continue. Okay. Um, was the prescriptive discourse of the law. Okay, what does something mean if it's prescriptive? Like it's ordained upon you to do it. Yeah, so it's prescribing something. Right. So, so yeah, this is, I guess, uh, Sajid, the answer to our question. The primary instrument of this elite intervention was a prescriptive discourse of the law, which essentially means fatwa. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Which is a discourse par excellence. Oh, mashallah. Of an educated, specialized, scholarly elite. This historical reality is well exemplified in the book of following the straight path by... I don't even know what that word means. The obstreperous? Okay. Obstreperous. So, uh, noisy and difficult to control. Okay. 
Kind of like an obstacle. Same uh, roots, maybe? Kind of, sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 13th century Damascusine? Damascene? Yeah, from Damascus. Okay. Scholar and public intellectual Tapi Adin Ibn Taymiyyah? Yeah, Ibn Taymiyyah is a big name to know. Okay. Uh, from the 1300s. I mean, not only would he be a scholar and intellectual, but also a scholar activist. So depending upon where you stand on the spectrum of Islamic thought, either you see him as a big hero or you see him as a big shaitan. But no matter what, everybody has to acknowledge that he was very prolific and a very big genius. Which is a lengthy sermon dedicated to the identification and correction of a prolific list of popular malpractices and concomitant misbeliefs not least Samat, the visitation of tombs, and the observance by Muslims of Jewish and Christian customs, the profusion and variety of which are vivid testimony to the historical failure of the Muslim commons to cleave to the jurist's straight and narrow path. Okay, so he's saying, you had people like Ibn Taymiyyah who were putting it upon themselves to correct where the Muslim community was deviating. And so one of his many, many books, I mean, he's apparently written so many books that if you stack them all together, it would probably be as tall as me, right? Mm -hmm. Really, really long, long list of, of books. And, and so this book, I do not recall reading it. Book of Following the Straight Path. Maybe, no, I don't think I have. So it's listing all these wrong things, like Samat, which we talked about. This was what, you know, many of the Sufis were doing um, in this period. Visiting the tombs, he's saying, was was wrong, as well as when Muslims and Jew, Muslims start doing Jewish and Christian customs. Yeah. And then on top of that, the fact that we're doing so many wrong things is an illustration of the failure of Muslims to actually practice the straight and narrow path. Yeah. The jurist straight and narrow path. The jurist straight and narrow path, yeah. So... Um... Did these people, these ignorant masses, did they, in their mind, were they justifying this stuff, or were they just, you know, doing it because it was custom? I think they were doing it because it was custom. Even think about today, uh, if you think about why, you know, in our communities we do whatever practices we do, mm. whether they are upright practices or deviant practices, it's because what everybody else does. Right. Right. If nobody did birthdays, there was a period of time where it was very common to say birthdays were innovations and stuff. I mean, that's kind of mostly gone. If no one did birthdays, then nobody else would do birthdays. If everybody did birthdays, then everybody was going to do birthdays. Are we talking about everybody in the Muslim community? Muslim community, yeah. Okay, because like, I'm thinking like everyone meaning Americans. Americans do birthdays, uh -huh. thus we do birthdays. And so that becomes a huge influence on us, mm -hmm. right? And so what you're seeing more and more are Muslims who will have Christmas trees at Christmas time, mm -hmm. right? Um, way, way, way back when I was younger, it would be very few who would have it. Um, now it's becoming much more common. Why? Because that's what everybody else does. Right. Yeah. You said that Ibn uh, Taymiyyah, um, some people would like him or hate him. Why? Yeah. I mean, some of his opinions. So he was a Hanbali, and he was very, very direct and blunt with his opinions. And the argument some people give is number one, that knowledge has to come by way of isnad. I mean, you learn from someone who learned from someone who learned from someone going all the way back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. One of the accusations against him is that a lot of what he, he did was self-taught. And then related to that, this idea that 
you do not have to be part of a, um, a school of law. You know, so the sense you get from him is that as long as you go back to the primary sources, you do not have to follow school of law. The issue with him is that he's a very, very complex thinker. So it could be that a lot of the love for him is misguided and it could be a lot of the hatred for him is misguided too. Right. Did he not follow school of law? I mean, he was uh, officially a Hanbali, but he's looked at as departing from the Hanbalis. Oh, okay. The development in modern scholarship of Sufism as a compartmentalized or specialized field of scholarly study and its relative neglect uh, by non-specialists has led to the tendency toward a comp compartmentalized and specialized view of the history of societies of Muslims in which Sufism is treated as a compartmentalized or specialized activity by Muslims rather than as seen as an integral and integrated element in the lives of Muslims. This is a very, very important point here. So the academic study of Islam has resulted in looking at the Sufis almost as their own religion among Muslims, right? And it doesn't really account for the fact that that which we call Sufism is, you know, throughout the entire Ummah. Okay? It wasn't this specific thing that people only in Tariqahs followed. When did it become a specific thing? Well, the interesting thing is that it probably happened because of the Western academic study of it. Oh. Right? So, you know, a lot of times my peers, your peers, when they come across a hadith that they don't like the wording of, they'll question, is this authentic or not? Okay. That's not coming. That is coming more from within the academic, Western academic study of Islam. You know, that's where this idea really got pushed that hadith are by and large fake, right? That's changing in the academic study of Islam. So I'm saying a lot more than we realize, many of our, of our opinions are actually informed by the Western academic study of Islam. Does the Western Academy not respect the science of hadith? So there's increasing respect. So the way, the, the way things happen across the, the uh, uh, academia is that someone will have a hypothesis and they'll write, you know, a paper or a book defending their hypothesis. And then if no one else is countering, then that becomes a standard view until someone else comes along, right? And so one of the first, or a few of the first big writers on Islamic studies argued that hadith are all made up. And so that just became the standard view for a hundred years. It wasn't until the 1990s that that view actually started getting pushed back upon for, for various reasons. I mean, there's a couple, a couple academic scholars who pushed against it, and they said, well, number one, we have earlier transcripts now, or earlier, not transcript, manuscripts that support, you know, that are earlier than Bukhari and Muslim, that, that's, you know, that, that line up, that Bukhari and Muslim line up with. And then on top of that, just to say that this is uh, all made up is ignoring the fact that you have all these biographical dictionaries, and then you have all these names that cross over into all these different fields, and, and to say that this is all made up is to suggest like one of the biggest conspiracies in, in human history. The arguments that people were given to say they're all made up is, you know, why, why do we have so many contradictions? And the people push back saying, of course, we're going to have contradictions. This is talking about people in their memory. It would be more believable that it's a conspiracy if there were no contradictions. Mm -hmm. right? right? So, yeah. So what happens is that then other people have their theses 
and the, or their hypotheses, and then they'll write their paper or book, and sometimes critiquing the other people. And you might wind up in any particular field, like with five different, you know, strands of opinions. Because I find myself thinking this a lot. Like, I quote Rumi a lot. Uh -huh. um, and I feel like if anybody else read it or looked at it, they'd be like, she's a Sufi. Uh -huh. But that's just part of the way we've been brought up. Again, going back to the fact that, like, mm -hmm. my parents have always read Rumi or all these other poets and scholars. Uh -huh. um, but I don't, yeah, I just don't understand why, like, Sufism is its own thing. So, yeah, this is, this is uh, more of a, seems to be more of a modern phenomenon. Okay. Um... There was something I was going to say. You, you know my favorite Rumi line, right? Uh, I think you've told me. You can tell me again. Don't quote me on Facebook. No. <laughs> Walked right into it. I thought Abraham Lincoln said that. Yeah, I think Abraham Lincoln was plagiarizing. Or I think Rumi was plagiarizing Abraham Lincoln. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Those were jokes for people who are listening, if anyone's ever listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. As such, even while scholars of Islamic history recognize Sufism as a socially prolific phenomenon, there is widespread non-recognition of the normativity in historical societies of Muslims of the truth claims of Sufi discourse. Okay, anybody want to translate this into simple English? Um, while scholars recognize it as a very widespread phenomenon, uh -huh. they don't recognize that it's normative, Yeah, that's a normal thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Right, so... That's exactly it. So the point being that it's still looked at as something that those people do, as opposed to it, no, this being just the normal practice throughout the Muslim community. You know, like for example, the, the listening to Awali music um, is, it proliferates all across the, 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 south, uh, the subcontinent. I mean, is Awali big in, in Afghanistan too? Yeah, I'm sorry? Sure. Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> it actually comes, uh, its origins are closer to Afghanistan. And so, so even people who might be otherwise more strict and literal in their approach to Islam and may not at all be Sufis and may not even appreciate Sufis will still listen to Qawwali music. Yeah. Isn't Sufism at this point kind of like a very elevated um, part of Islam? Like people feel like it's hard to reach it and it's hard to connect to it. I, I mean, feel like a lot of people view it that way. Um, maybe some people. Um, I mean, it's basically everything because... Um, there are the goofy Sufis, there are the orthodox Sufis, I mean, there's exclusivist Sufis, there's every single type of Sufi. So. Someone was telling me, um, this guy from the Naperville community, he was talking about how um, at, like mass, at the conventions, he noticed that over the years, the books that they started to sell have been increasingly towards the Sufi direction, uh -huh. and that like before you could find a lot of books that reflected the Salafi viewpoints, uh -huh. versus now they've decreased in number. Do you think, what do you think about that? Uh, I think uh, my take would be that everything has actually increased. And so Sufi books are more noticeable. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Salafi books have decreased. Okay. I think they've also increased. But it may be that Salafi books or Sufi books have increased more. Because I was thinking maybe it's, maybe like as we settle down in America, that that, that, that brand of Islam is more palatable to, yeah. you know, Muslims so that they can adapt and like live lives yeah I think so there's probably some truth to that yeah okay let's continue rather than uh, yeah. yeah rather than being regarded as normative and representative Sufism is seen as alternative and particular one symptom of this is the fact that when scholars speak of the relationship between Sufism and laws 
and law and societies of Muslim in terms of contestation, as they often do, many of them tend reflexively to assume and present a historical picture in which it is Sufism alone that is the contested discourse and that it is necessarily on the defensive against the authority of the law. In the normative picture presented by historians, it is Sufism that is in the dock, and it is the discourse of the law that is invariably the ultimate judge and juror. Okay, so, so what are we saying here? That the common way people look at this is that Sufis, the way the Sufis, and I don't even like this word Sufism, but the, the way the Sufis and the way the law are in contestation, meaning they're opposed to each other, okay? um, as opposed to fitting together. But weren't they con contesting to some degree? Because remember that quote from one of the scholars back in the first part of the book where he said, like, the jurors or the jurists are like the frowns of my time? Mm -hmm. Do you remember okay. that? Vaguely, you know. Like, what, how does that not contradict this, this, this section here? I mean, I think what, uh, what uh, is coming across or what I'm reading into this is the sense that the, the two were not as much in conflict as we think that they are. Okay. Or as they were made to seem that they are. Um, and then thus, looking at it that way, the, you know, the muftis would look at Sufis and be the judges. And that fits kind of like what you're saying. If they're the pharaohs, then, then they're the ones that are the ultimate judge, which is exactly, I think, what's being said here. Um, and the point I think he's making is that there was not as much conflict as people think. You know? It doesn't mean that they were doing the, they were agreeing. Uh, it just uh, means that there's not as much conflict. Like agree, disagree? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, In contrast, the foregoing presentation of Sufi discourses shows a historical picture where the, where the practitioners of Sufi epistemology are making normative and authoritative claims that contest, undermine, and put on the defensive legal epistemology and discourse. Okay, try to translate that. Um, it's saying that the prominent um, presentation of Sufi doctrine uh -huh. uh, depicts that Sufis um, like how you're putting in are making normative and authoritative claims, meaning they're making claims that are normal and like as if that's the ultimate truth. Of Islam, yeah. Of Islam that contest, undermine, and um, put on defensive that that basically challenge legal epistemology. Mm -hmm. So it's basically raising the question: who was who was calling out whom? And so he's saying Sufis were also calling out the jurists, saying you guys have missed the boat, you guys have gotten too caught up in the law, and have lost sight of God. Okay, let's continue. The social actualization of these claims is nicely illustrated in the following description by a historian of Sufism of the society of the town of Zabid in 14th century Yemen, where the anthropocosmic, cosmoanthropic theory of the perfect man, al-insan al-kamil, abstracted and eternalized in the essence ideal of the Muhammadan real truth, al-haqiqa al-Muhammadiyah, was published in a scholarly treatise by Abdul Karim al Jili. Yeah, Jili, yeah. In a milieu permeated. Permeated. Permeated 
By the social and imaginal structures of Sufism, Al-Jalili applied the concept to his own living Sufi master, a gentleman of Eritrean extraction by the name of Ismail Al-Jabarti. Yeah. These are all, these are really, really huge names that he's referencing. Uh, Zabid is a big place, and one of the most famous scholars is, of course, named Zabidi. And uh, Jili and, and Jabarti, these are all, all well-known people. So let's decode. In discussing the central topic of his work, the manifestation of the essence of Muhammad in the personality of the perfect man of the age, Al-Jalili wrote, I encountered him in the form of my master, Sharaf al-Din Ismail al-Jabarti. Okay, so, so basically, what's, what's he saying here? That the idea of the perfect man, a.k.a. the one who is most like the Prophet, peace be upon him, is my teacher. The lack of a clear-cut boundary between abstract metaphysical separation and personal mystical experience characterizes Ibn Arabi's uh, entire worldview. Al-Jalili drew no, no sharp line between the perfect man as an abstract manifestation of the universal Al-Haqiqa Al-Muhammadiyah and, and its quite concrete embodiment in the personality of his Yemeni master. Since Al-Jalili was one of the most well-educated mystical thinkers of his age, one cannot even fathom what exuberant forms the veneration of Al-Jabarti should have assumed uh, among his less sophisticated followers. Emboldened by the Sultan's support, the Sufis of Zabid began to openly defy their, detra their detractors among the Fuqaha, yeah, Fuqaha, yeah. Who continually attack the noisy Sufi gatherings in the mosques that were accompanied with much drumbeat, singing and dancing. Ecstatic behavior was not uncommon among the participants. Such scandalous going-ons in the city mosques alarmed many ulama who felt they were losing ground to Al-Jabarti's followers. Yet with the Sultan's sympathy squarely on the latter side, the ulama had to toe a fine line. So again, it's raising the question, where is the authority? Who has, the, who has the influence to call out whom. And so it's saying the practices, many of the practices of the Sufis, the, the academic scholars, meaning the fuqaha, the ulama, didn't like. But because the sultan liked the Sufis, the scholars had to be careful about what they said. So a lot of this is kind of saying, whom was it that the sultan supported would often determine what was normative. I mean, in this case, the excerpt is like the him quoting Al Jalili. It's been cut off, so we don't know like what he's saying or what he means. Yeah. Is it necessarily wrong if uh, he explains it in a specific way, where like he does see maybe qualities of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam in his uh, you know teacher? Yeah, I don't think the issue is as much with with the the said. scholar. Mm. It's the followers who then love the scholar so much that they start doing all these things. Oh, right. And the sultan who's okay with it. Yeah. Okay. And so the scholar is rarely going to say, "Okay, bury me in such and such tomb," and then come and do such and such, you know, performances. Uh, but the followers, who might just be full of zealous love for for their sheikh who has passed away mm -hmm. may do all these things okay yeah. i mean think about the things that happen with celebrity culture right yeah. so then does the like wouldn't the teacher who is aware of this kind of like this, this phenomenon wouldn't the teacher kind of 
warn his students not to do that kind of stuff? Well, I think it depends upon, uh, if we assume that the teacher has a, a good, strong relationship with all the students, mm-hmm. I think it depends on where the students are. So think about all the different students who come to my office, mm-hmm. right? And they're coming at different levels of faith, different practices. Mm-hmm. And so I'm addressing the students according to where they are, right. which means I will give you one answer, which will be different than the answer I give you, which will be a different answer than what I give them. Mm-hmm. So let's say the, the sheikh is witnessing all this, it could be that he's endorsing it, mm-hmm. uh, but let's say he, he's not a fan of it. Um, he may or may not say, don't do this, right? Uh, he may later try to get them to the point where they're ready to hear, don't do this. But a lot of times the followers are uh, uh, of not very much knowledge, but full of excitement and hope and everything. Mm-hmm. So the teacher in a sense loses control. I mean, it may not be losing control. It's just that if you look at all the different practices that are in the followers of a big figure, you might find everything. The people that the scholar is closest to should hopefully be the ones who are most upright. So even if you think of the Sahaba, the, the companions that were closest to the Prophet, peace be upon him, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, Ali, right? Those were super towering giants of faith, giants of character and stuff. But then if we got it to the, scout, the, the companions that were really far away, especially those that had recently become Muslim, you know, they still have a lot of the, you know, uh, they potentially have a lot of jahiliyyah in their practices, as becomes apparent when the Prophet Pisona died, and a lot of those people said, we're not paying zakat anymore, right? And many of those people were sahabas, weren't they? You know, they had just become Muslim. Um, and so the point is that, it comes down to how close the people are to the sheikh. The people that, you know, the sheikh is seeing on a regular basis, every single day studying with him, those people are all probably, in theory, super upright and, and very well grounded within, you know, that which is halal. Mm-hmm. But the people who don't have that capability because they have, you know, let's say full-time jobs, let's say especially if they're laborers, they're going to partake of, of whatever they can. That's how that's how a complex society works. Yeah. Here we have a historical situation where definitive and emblematic ideas of the Sufi philosophical amalgam, uh-huh. namely the concepts of Muhammad, Muhammadan real truth and perfect man, are mobilized and asserted as a normative value against and above the values of the law at the at all levels of society, from the sultan to common people participating in Sufi rituals and where the proponents of legal values find themselves deferring to this normative claim, not least because the claim is subscribed to by the ruling institutions and social strata strata, strata of the state itself. Okay. Anybody want to try? Here we have a historical situation where definitive and emblematic ideas of the Sufi philosophical amalgam, namely the concepts of Mohammedan real truth and perfect man, are mobilized and asserted as a normative value against and above the values of law at all levels of society. So what is he saying is that, okay, these practices were more of the default okay, than what the, the fuqaha were preaching. Talking about this example here. Yeah. Okay. And so and so, then he says, um, all levels of the society from the sultan to the common people participating in these rituals where the proponents of legal values find themselves deferring to this normative claim. Basically, the, so that the fuqaha are, are having to relent 
and in whatever form say this is okay. A way to think about this is, is today watching of television, listening to movies, or listening to songs, watching movies. Okay? You can say a hundred times that music is haram, but is there any corner of the Muslim world where music is not a big part of, of culture, right? including many parts of religious culture? And so, so then, I mean, most of the scholars will just not get into it. And this becomes even more so in these environments because the king is supporting it. Mm -hmm. And in theory, this, the, the legal scholars will give their opinions no matter what, regardless of what the king has to say. But in some cases, they might risk alienating the king, which means they might risk losing their jobs. Right? Like, I mean, how many scholars do you hear today condemning Trump? If Trump turns more and more into a dictator, you will hear less and less criticism of him. You'll hear some people become more aggressive, and you'll hear a lot of people become quiet. Yeah. Out of fear of persecution. Yes. <coughs> yeah. um, so kind of a digressive question, yeah. but like, what was the, what was the, what were the people, what was the people's experience with music at the time of the Prophet? Like, was that a part of their life too? Well, I mean, we, uh, what were the, what was going on when the Prophet was entering Medina? Entering Medina? So would you call that a song? I would, yeah. So there it is. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Should I answer? Okay, uh, let's see. Let's stop right here. Should I finish the last sentence? Oh, oh, yeah, I thought we finished. Go ahead. This is not at all un an uncommon historical scenario in the history of societies of Muslims. Okay. I mean, one thing that we're overall getting from this section is that society was not as segmented as, as we might think. Where these people are here, those people are here, but things were all spread around and mixed together. Right. But what page is this? Uh, 95. Page 95 with a paragraph that begins the assertion of non-legal values. MashaAllah. Mm -hmm. All right.